Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Kicking the Kyriarchy, the intersectional feminist podcast with a punch. We are your hosts, Sidney and Elena, and together we are starting to dismantle the patriarchy. But it's not all about the men. Oh, no. Kyriaki is about all the intersections of identity and all the things that make you, you, and the way that power and privilege are attributed to that. Welcome to this episode. It's been 100 years since some women got the right to vote in the UK. So what does this mean for women today? How do you define feminism? And how do we make sure we are fighting for people other than ourselves? We chat to our guests to find out more. Hi, I'm Samita. I'm a woman. I'm British and I'm of South Asian descent. So I'm a British Asian and I'm a historian. Amazing. Thank you so much, Samita, for joining us. This year is so important, 2018, as it's marking yeah. 100 years since some women were given suffrage to the right to vote. Can you tell us a little bit about Indian suffragettes? I think generally there is some awareness of suffrage history now in this country. We know about the suffragettes who are the militant women who fought often violently for the right to vote. They're the ones who chained themselves to railings, were involved in protests in the streets, who were imprisoned and involved in hunger protests. And we also know about the suffragists, the peaceful women who wrote petitions, who would lobby men and politicians and have peaceful meetings to discuss the reasons why women should have the vote. And in all these histories of the British movement, then the general discussion lies on the leaders of this movement. And these are generally white middle class women. What's less known is that there were some women of colour who were involved in the British movement, not to a great extent, but there were a few women of colour. There's someone called Sophia Dilip Singh, who was of Indian and Ethiopian descent. And there are some other women of Indian descent who especially lived in London and the areas surrounding London who were involved in various suffrage fairs, processions and um, campaigns. Can you tell us why there were Indian suffragettes in London at the time campaigning for the right to vote? The main period of suffrage activity in Britain was around the 1910s. And by the 1910s, there were many people of colour 
who lived in Britain of all races and ethnicities. Britain has been racially and ethnically diverse for centuries, and so in the beginning of the 20th century, this is a fact that people of, of different ethnicities have said who involved. So as women were campaigning to vote, it was natural that women of colour would also be interested in these ideas. Women around the world in the early 20th century were campaigning for the vote. It wasn't just unique to Britain. And so women of other nationalities and ethnicities who lived in Britain would naturally also want to be engaged in suffrage campaigns. I don't know why that's always surprising to hear. And I think that that is something that I have to check my biases when I hear things like that, because it's like, well, obviously other women (laughs) from other nationalities and ethnicities and around the world want the same rights because surely you, you you know, rights and freedoms are universal. Can you tell us what were the classes of women who would have been fighting for suffrage? So suffrage was a campaign and a movement that incorporated all classes of women in Britain. It was led mostly by women from the middle and upper classes, but there were examples of working class leaders, especially in local areas who were the leaders of local groups and movements and there were working class women generally who were involved in the suffrage movement both as suffragettes so as these more violent militant campaigners and also those who took on the peaceful route. However that's not to say that there weren't issues of class and race and hierarchies within the movement and ways in which some women were not given the voice that they might have wanted in the movement. And you mentioned Sophia Dalip Singh. Yeah. Can you chat to us a little bit about who she was? Because obviously she's quite a prominent figure in all of this. Sophia Dalip Singh was born in Norfolk, so she was born in Britain. Her father were, had been an Indian prince who had been exiled and come to Britain as a young child. Her mother was of Ethiopian and German descent. So being the daughter of a former Indian prince, she was descended from Indian royalty and had an aristocratic upbringing in Britain as well. She was goddaughter of Queen Victoria because her father had been a favourite of Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria gave her a house to live in the grounds of Hampton Court Palace. You know, she had a very, very privileged background, despite her racial background. But she did, as she entered into adulthood, um, get very involved in issues of rights and freedoms and became involved in the suffrage movement in Britain. She was a leading member of a organisation called the Women's Tax Resistance League, who argued that as women didn't have the vote, they shouldn't have to pay taxes. And so she was involved in lots of campaigns around refusing to pay taxes and trying to um, use that route to shame the authorities into giving women the vote. I mean, what's interesting about her, you know, it's difficult to judge her, is that because of her wealth and aristocratic background, she had a lot of privilege and she was able to use that privilege in the campaign. But we also see in the ways in which the courts and the police and the authorities treated her for her activities, there was a difference to, say, working class women who did exactly the same form of the process. So Sophia was protected from being put into jail, whereas working class women who did exactly the same thing as her were put into jail. So I'm interested to know like, how the empire is intertwined within all of this. It is 
intimately intertwined with the suffrage movement and the ways in which women were demanding the votes. And it's essential that we don't obscure or forget. So, as I said, the suffrage movement was at its height in the 1910s in Britain. And at that time, Britain had an empire, not only in India, but colonies in Africa, Caribbean, and other parts of the world. And women who were campaigning for the votes of Britain knew very well that having the votes and having a say in what went on in the House of Commons in, in Britain meant that they then had a say in what went on in empire. So many British, white British suffrage campaigners used empire as a justification and argument for the right for women to vote in Britain. They said that they needed to have a vote because they needed to have a say about what was going on in empire and they had things to say about imperial politics. So these were women who weren't saying that they wanted just to dismantle empire in any way at all. They were saying that by giving women the vote, actually, it would shore up and protect empire and the power that the House of Commons had over its imperial subjects. So that's one aspect of how imperialism really plays into the debates around suffrage. We also see, kind of related to that, that white British suffrage campaigners would often use the object of colonised women as well as a justification for giving white British women the vote. They would argue, on a number of accounts, so they would argue that they were superior to women of colour in other parts of the world and that they needed to have the vote in Britain before other women in the parts of the world got the vote, so that that's kind of an urgency to their campaigns and they would use those arguments. They also said that by giving them the vote, white British women the vote in Britain, they would then be able to use that power to save their subjected sisters around the world and to promote and impose some of the moral reform activities that women in that era were often involved in. And so what do you think that we, the feminist movement from today, what do you think we can take from history and these feminists? Well, I think there's so many things that we should be thinking about and taking. Of course, we should be inspired by the ways in which women were speaking up and speaking out and were getting involved in activities which could imprison them or um, make them vulnerable. But ultimately, we really have to think about who we are including and excluding in our campaigns, in our conversations, in who we are, when I say we, who is the we that we are thinking about? How can we be better allies to the movement? So a lot of my work has been about trying to decenter our understandings of the suffrage movement and suffrage histories and just generally women's histories and to not assume that Britain or America or the Western world is at the centre of all movements, to acknowledge that we can learn from women and allies from around the world and that we constantly have to learn and listen to each other from around the world and allow people to take the lead in other parts of the world as well, that we need to be always conscious of who we are including and excluding, constantly think about who are we giving voice who are we listening to and allowing to speak in both in our history books 
but also, of course, in the present day. Amazing. Samisha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month and for chatting to us about it. Yay! (laughs) That was Samita talking to us about the South Asian women who played a role in our right to vote today. Up next is Paula. Hi, my name's Paula. I'm 24. I'm a black queer woman. Thank you so much, Paula, for coming on the podcast this month. We're big fans of your writing on Galdem. And we recently saw you interview Lupita for Black Panther. And that was really awesome. (laughs) Um, So well done on that. That was really awesome. How was that, by the way, doing that? Oh, my gosh, it was incredible. But we'd gone to the premiere the night before um and got absolutely wasted oh my gosh so so we're very very hungover at the interview and we're just like oh god so um we're actually speaking to Lupita and tonight in actual person but no it was really really good and I think because I was interviewing with my um partner like Nye I think it was just it was so nice seeing two black women interviewing two other black women about like dark skin representation um they were so intelligent and had so much to say and also Lupita complimented my lip gloss so obviously I'm I'm winning at life (laughs) yeah that's amazing no it was really interesting that there was a lot of things that I took away from that you know and like you said it was really refreshing to actually see um two black women and not someone from you know another media outlet who happened to be white Mm -hmm. interviewing them talking to them about those issues so you guys rocked it I'm glad thank you so this month's episode is all about feminism so if possible could we start with a really broad question I guess which is how would you define feminism I would define feminism as the reshifting of power and opportunities between genders but also within nuanced pockets is like race disability sexuality etc cool amazing so it's been a hundred years since some women won the right Mm -hmm. to vote in the uk and i guess that that some is quite important so can you expand on that in terms of why were only some women granted the right to vote honestly my knowledge around suffrage is a bit patchy but essentially it was off the backs of Indian and African suffragettes so Susan B. Anthony is often seen as first feminist and like a pioneer and things like that but then the right for women to vote was seen as more important than the right for Negroes or black people to vote and she has been quoted as saying things like I would rather cut off my arm or something than let a black man vote before me. Then you've got this kind of place where it's like, hello, I'm also a woman, but I guess I don't really count because I'm black and, you know, you don't really value my voice. So I think there's a lot of hesitance as a woman who is not white when people are heralding suffrage movement when it really didn't include everyone and it was only partial suffrage. How much further do you think we have to go in the UK? I think a lot further, but it's not necessarily in terms of votes. I think it's a lot in terms of shifting cultural attitudes. We feel like, yeah, but you've got, you can vote and like, you know, you can get a job and you can do all these things and, you know, why aren't you happy? But then it goes beyond that. There's a lot to do in terms of cultural expectations and shifting around that. So, like, for example, with Meghan Markle and how people have been 
again, heralding that as like, yeah, now we live in a post-racial society and X, Y, Z. You're like, no, 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 this doesn't actually change the day-to-day for me. This doesn't change the fact that black women are seen, you know, as the bottom of the pile, that we're earning less than our white women counterparts, um, let alone, like, white men, that we are disproportionately the victims of domestic and sexual violence. There's so much work that's still to be done. Yeah, completely. And I think that it nicely leads on to my next question, which is what did you make of the the Women's March last year? Um, You know, when you were kind of highlighting the the issues of facing black women, what did you make of that march? I, on one hand, was kind of impressed by the how many people showed out. Um, and I think it was like a testament to mobilization and what that can look like. But on the whole, I just found it quite frustrating. And we're all kind of there with the knowledge that it was like, what, 52% of white women had voted for Trump. So it's like, some of you people in this crowd have voted for Trump. And it's only when these things affect you personally that you're mobilizing yourself. So I've been to marches and like protests for like Yarlswood and it's why can we not shift that kind of ferocity and awareness and why aren't we shifting that to Yarlswood or other protests supporting um, black women or women of colour or, you know, refugees? I think it's quite frustrating that there are only certain voices or certain issues that are upheld. I think it was just also very exclusive in some ways in that it was just pussy power feminism, which is the most infuriating kind of feminism to me because for the most part it's trans-exclusionary. If we're talking about reproductive rights, like we can have that conversation without making the whole movement about genitalia. Um, and then it's just quite wasteful. People are sticking sanitary pads on walls and things like that and like writing messages like, yeah, I'm a nasty woman. You could have given those pads to the homeless woman that you'll occasionally like retweet something about. <sighs> yeah, it's just quite frustrating to be expected to like march alongside women who aren't always that vocal if it is something that's specifically about black women, specifically about trans women. So, yeah, all in all, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't the biggest fan. Yeah, and I can imagine, wasn't it something like 94 or 93% of black women voted for Hillary? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I guess when you kind of collectively feel like black women may have actually done their part, why are you then marching for white women who didn't, who like 52% voted for Trump? Mm. There seems to be this idea that black women save the day for everyone. And it's like, no, 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 like we're saving the day for ourselves because no one else is going to do it. I think there's a concept that it's fine, black women will do it because we're so used to having to set things in motion for ourselves. Do you think that um, being in the UK, that Trump's presidency affects us here at all? Oh, absolutely. The UK is very much still in the US's pocket and, you know, constantly seeing Theresa May and just our politicians pandering to Trump is frustrating. Trump is just a figurehead and he is the face of white supremacy at the minute, but he is literally like the consequence of a wider issue. So white supremacy is rife everywhere. 
obviously. But I feel like with his presidency, I think it's quite harrowing. It took place in the same year that we had Brexit and it was kind of hammering home that these aren't your countries or like we don't necessarily want you here or um, that white supremacy will come out on top. So I think there is like a symbolic thing there as well of this man with like no qualifications with like open hatred or like dismissiveness towards other races, other genders. He is in a position of power and he is a symptom of something that is happening over here in the UK as well. Absolutely. You actually wrote a lot about um, Diane Abbott and the misogynoir that she experienced. Can you tell us um, what is misogynoir and then also a little bit about yeah, what's happening with Diane, what that means? So misogynoir is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, a black theorist, and it's basically the intersection for black women between racism and misogyny. So there are issues that affect us that will never affect white women and will never affect black men. And it was kind of creating a space to talk about that and identify those kind of issues. As a black woman, what can be quite frustrating is defending or standing up for black men because you're like, well, we're black people, we have to like back each other. And to also then be on the receiving end from black men when some of them enter saviour complex mode where they defend white women over something that you've said or something that they've said. So a white woman might do something, maybe getting weaves or like dreads or something. And then you're there like, why are you doing that? That's so unnecessary. And then a black man might intervene and be like, well, you know, it's really not that bad. Like, I say it's okay, blah, blah. And then that is an instance where, as a black woman, you're kind of like, oh, I was defending you. And I was defending us. And I have been kind of left out in the cold. And then also in, like, terms of, I don't know, like, dating, for example. So people approaching you in a way that they would never approach white women or women of, another race by being like wonder what like sleeping with a black woman's like or kind of calling you chocolate or oh god I've been there was one time I was out at a pub with two of my friends both black women and then there was this white guy who was watching us and lo and behold he came over and was just like I just wanted to say that I've just never seen such like three beautiful Nubian queens and we all three of us were just there like oh my god and it's like that kind of the fetishization that would never be experienced by a white woman because you're seen as the standard and then anything else is like exotic or like a flavor that you want to try um and then in terms of the political realm with Diane Abbott so in the six months preceding the general election she received a third of all online abuse in comparison to other politicians who are making the same fuck ups for the guardian she talks about one tweet where someone wanted to lynch her you fat black pig or um calling her the n-word as well and it's like i don't understand how people say stop making it about race because when you say things like that it is already about race you know, it's undeniable that when you are black and you're already discriminated against and then you throw in a little bit of womanhood with that, 
And then if you are trans and if you are disabled, identity is further compounded because you're seen as lower and lower down, um, down the heap, I guess. How does this fit for you as a, as a black queer woman? And how do you feel about politics and the, the lack of representation, I suppose? I think growing up, I felt so far removed from politics. I felt like it wasn't for me. It's just like, this isn't my realm. And I think it's when you kind of grow up and I think especially like having gone to uni and studied like sociology and thinking about different social groups and then realising that it's more than you. I think it's so much broader than yourself and thinking about how the way you vote will impact obviously you, but also the other groups that may not often be represented. But yeah, I think it's hard trying to engage with something that you're constantly pushed out of or is not made accessible to you, which is why I thought Grimes Corbyn was fantastic in the way that it engaged the most disengaged group, 18 to 24-year-olds. And then you had like, people like JME and like Stormzy and gigs like weighing in on politics. This is such a white man's fear-dominated world. And then it's like, here are black people, here are black men, here are black women forcing their way in and pulling out the knowledge and making it as relatable as possible for younger people. Because all of these decisions are affecting 18 to 24-year-olds more than most. So it's so important that we are trying to pull in younger people and engage them more. And when I was like looking at some of your writing, I saw that you wrote about r- racist marketing campaigns. The title of the article you wrote is Why I'm No Longer Giving Racist Marketing Campaigns My Outrage. Is that something that you're interested in talking about? Oh, definitely. Like With that title, with that article, I think it's more in terms of online outrage mm. because it's like, I don't want to give you my clicks. I don't want to give you any retweets. Mm. I don't want to, like highlight you in any kind of way even when i'm like talking about the daily mail for example i won't like link to their articles any of their social media or any of their tweets because it's like you have an agenda and i don't want to play into that it's reached a place where it's like i actually can't because it's draining to engage with it and you find yourself having to debate and justify your personhood and also why this has deeply affected you or why you decide to point this out. So I feel like I'm in a better place having taken a step back and been like, this is done intentionally. It's not like a, you're not having a conversation with them. Sometimes it just feels like it's you shouting at a brick wall. And it's like, why not conserve that energy to do something that's more fruitful, to do something that can empower people who look like me more. I think there's something to be said here about um, emotional labour and self-care and mm-hmm. how how you draw the line for yourself in order to keep going. I think it's kind of how I interact with things online specifically. So like everything I do is intertwined with social media in some way. So I'm like social media editor at Gaudem as co-founder of the Untied Project and Black Girl Festival, have to do a lot of social media work around there. And then I also work in communications in my nine to five job. So like, I can't really disconnect from anything. So then it was kind of like, okay, how do I 
moderate things for myself so that I'm not constantly overwhelmed by things. I think it's checking in with yourself and being aware of what you can and can't deal with. So I remember, um, I think it was like summer 2016 when police brutality, it felt like every couple of days there was a new shooting, there was a new killing. And um, I think it was the toll of constantly seeing just people being killed because they're black, um, essentially. And how that makes you feel as a black person with two black brothers. And like, what if they somehow were caught in a situation like this and it cost them their lives? And like thinking about just how expendable black life is to police and to just people in positions of power. I think it was at that moment I was like, I have to do something differently because it felt like. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I was taking on absolutely everything I was seeing. So then I think with subsequent kind of instances, I was kind of like, am I ready to deal with this? And if no, then just keep scrolling past it until you feel like you can. Like it doesn't make you a bad black person for like not tweeting how outraged you are about it or like for not engaging with it. It just means that in this moment in time, you know, nothing positive is going to come out of you engaging with this if i do want to read a news article on this or if i do want to watch an informative video about this then i will but in my own time which is actually so i started like seeing this white girl and she tagged me in a video of one of these police brutality videos and i was so angry at her because i was like you, this for you this is like news and you might you know be a little bit affected by it or like you know that's so shit but for me it's a reminder of my status in the world and my status in society and you tagging me in that it's you kind of being performative and being like look how kind of like down with you i am like mm-hmm. oh my god i'm really like annoyed by this and you're not giving me a chance like you're forcing me out of the kind of cocoon that I've made for myself to just show me that you're so like socially aware 
I think it knowing which people you have to let go because they're actually not conducive to your mental health or like your emotional well-being. So yeah, it, self-care is something that I'm still working on and it's something that doesn't look the same for everyone. So for some people, it's like having a bath. For me, it's kind of like watching Law and Order <laughs> and like just shopping on ASOS and things like that. So it's kind of figuring out what makes you feel better, what helps you kind of lose yourself a bit and forget about the reality of, you know, how people view um, people who look like you. Yeah, I think that I, I thought that was interesting what you were saying about um, when you were seeing that girl that if you're seeing people, not everybody is going to see the world the way that you see it or is going to like be mm-hmm. as clued up on issues as you are. Um, mm-hmm. What To what extent do you then take that into your relationships and when do you like give up on it? Are you patient with people and give them the benefit of the doubt or or do you just think you don't actually get it? I think it kind of, you have to take it like case by case because I think I will give people the benefit of the doubt or will be more willing to kind of educate someone that is close to me or that I care about or that I know that can be better. Whereas, like, you know, people who randomly tweet you stuff, I'm like, I don't know you and I don't really care about you. So, like, I'm not going to invest that kind of time or energy. With, like, a relationship or with, like, someone that you have close to you, I shouldn't have to battle it out with you in the same way that I'm battling out with other people in the world. Like, you should be, like, a safe place for me, not, like, a safe space kind of thing. You should be, like, home, essentially. Like, I should be able to find a home in you. I don't want you to belittle or demean, like, my experiences. If you're facing the same kind of scepticism within a close friendship or relationship in the same way that you do generally day to day then I just there is only so much work you can do with people and there's only so much work that you should have to do like I didn't you know I wasn't put on this planet to educate everyone I think if you're finding yourself doing that in a close relationship and they're actually depleting you then I think it's fine and actually completely necessary for you to walk away and conserve like your own energy and your own like sense of self How can um, Elena and I and our listeners be better allies? Um, Amplify the voices of people whose voices aren't listened to or aren't heard enough. It's so easy to do that without co-opting or kind of without making it about yourself. And I think pull people in, especially when you're in a position of power or like influence for example with this podcast we're pulling other people in to talk about their own lived experiences and that is important i think also if you are a white person in a position of power at a company and you've got this great new project and it's like okay well this is an opportunity then if you know someone who is talented and fits bill and then you know they are often not listened to because they are a person of colour or they are disabled or they are X, Y, Z. Then pull them in the conversation, give them a sphere of influence as well, and then they will keep pulling other people in as well. And then just do your own research a lot of the time. I think marginalised people are so busy living their experiences. There are so many resources out there 
readily available, so many platforms, so many outlets. So instead of like turning to your marginalized friends to ask them and like, which can often be quite invasive and like personal questions, make an effort of like doing your own research. Absolutely. So is there anything that you're working on that you would like to platform? So anything like the uh, Black Girl Fest and the I'm Tired Project, things that you started, anything, the floor is yours. So we have Black Girl Fest, which is back again on 27th and 28th of October. And it's basically it's like an arts and culture free community festival. And it's just celebrating black British women and girls in a way that we just never do in this country like at all. So currently plotting and programming at the minute. Um, but we'll be releasing more details close to the time as like how you can get tickets. It's open to everyone, not just black women or black people, um, because it's open to everyone to celebrate black women um, and girls. Um, but yeah, and then going to Edinburgh next month to work with the University of Edinburgh's um, BME network. And we're going to do some workshops and a photo shoot and then an exhibition as well, which will be really nice. Those are the main two things on the horizon for me. Do you want to tell us a bit about Galdem as well? So Galdem is a online and print magazine run entirely by women of colour and non-binary people of colour. And, it's yeah, it's just like a really thick platform where you get to talk. You can talk about race if you want, but also you can talk about, like, music or fashion or, you know, it's like getting to write about things that bigger or more well-established um, papers and outlets wouldn't commission you for. Um, so this is our third year running and we'll have our print issue out in September, which is on my way. Um, but yeah, we've got a lot of events and but yeah, so just I would follow our handles um, to stay involved with the stuff that we're doing and it's really easy to submit to us as well. Um, we take all pictures and then we'll work it through with you and get it on the web. And that was Paula talking to us about self-care, politics and the impact of Trump here in the UK. Interesting to think our outrage on social media is potentially furthering the agenda of problematic advertising campaigns. Next, we chat to Meryl. My name is Meryl Dusgan. I'm 25. I describe myself as a Londoner of Kurdish descent and I identify as a straight female. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about feminism today. How do you define feminism? I would define the feminism I believe in as a philosophy that advocates the social, economical and political equality of the sexes, regardless of a person's background, race or identity. So can you give us some background on the Kurdish people, please? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, often when I describe myself as Kurdish, most people are like, what is that? which can make you feel a bit down because that is like a huge part of the Kurdish problem, people not being aware of who we are. So of course they're not going to understand what the Kurdish people have been through if you don't even know who these people are. And there are approximately 30 million Kurds living in Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Syria and Armenia. 
and they're the largest ethnic minority which have never gained a permanent nation state. And of course, being displaced across various different countries often means that you are considered the other in all these countries. And this has left Kurdish people susceptible to countless genocides, being political prisoners. Currently in Turkey, the HDP party, which advocates the rights of Kurdish people. Many members of the party are currently imprisoned because in Turkey, due to a lot of political aggression in the 1970s with the PKK party, the Kurdish Workers' Party, there's a general view that if you're Kurdish, you've probably got an alignment to this party and therefore you're, it sounds quite silly, but probably a terrorist. And this is a difficulty which many people in Turkey face. And of course, being a displaced woman makes the situation even more difficult. There's been countless recordings of women being taken as political prisoners and often being subjected to rape and torture in the most horrific ways. And it's just an issue which has been going on for such a long time. And as a Kurdish person, it's quite dampening for the soul to know that these things are always happening and whether there will ever be an end, really. I can mainly speak on the situation in Turkey. But, for example, in Iraq, under Saddam Hussein's rule, there was the Al-Anfar campaign, Halabja, where people were subjected to chemical bombs. So it's quite a complex issue in question to solve for people. So most people don't know about the Kurds and yet there's so mm. much history and discrimination yes. on the basis of it as an mm-hmm. identity. Could you give us some background on the Kurdish YPG female fighters? Sure. <laughs> the YPG, the Women's Protection Units, are the largest contingents of female militants in the world. They've played a very active role in fighting against ISIS and an active role in freeing Raqqa with their male counterparts, the YPG. Again, the YPG YPJ is also a complicated issue because they're seen as an offshoot from the PKK and the PKK, of course, are viewed as a terrorist organisation by Turkey, the US. However, they aren't viewed as one by China, Egypt, the UN, for example. So they have been funded by these countries to help fight against ISIS. A core belief of the YPJ is that it's very much up to women to decide how they should rule their lives. And of course, many women who have been subjected to war have decided to take up arms because they've seen it as the only promising option in the situations they've been living in. A core belief behind the Kurdish movement is the liberation of women. The YPJ promotes the ideology of genealogy, which is the belief that without the liberation of women in society, no society can call itself free. And I think that's a very useful belief to believe in. I have a lot of admiration for these women because I couldn't actually put myself in the place to take up arms and fight against terrorists, for example. But of course, it is seen as many as quite extreme, taking up arms. So it's interesting to hear about these women in a Kurdish context because mm-hmm. It almost sounds like countries and the cultures that you were describing as Kurdish are almost sometimes associated with being quite oppressive towards women. Yeah, and that's true. And that's what makes the YPJ and this force of feminism in Kurdish society now so remarkable to me because women have been subjected to this 
patriarchal culture and this strong sense of tradition. Even now, today, for example, there are other Kurdish groups like the KDP in Iraq, which still have this very stereotypical view of women and men and the roles that they should play. I believe that that's what makes these women so progressive. The fact that they've achieved this mentality whilst being suppressed so much in a society which has not promoted gender equality at all. But I think that that could also be the reason why it has become such a powerful force for these women. The fact that they have been so suppressed. For example, the PKK leader, Abdullah Öcalan, who's currently imprisoned in Turkey, he also believed that the liberation of women was important for the actual Kurdish question in general. I think he says, for a democratic nation, women's freedom is of great importance and liberated women constitutes a liberated society, which I think is a key belief behind these women. And the feminism which these women have advocated, it's not only a shared view of Kurdish women, but also Kurdish men. And that I believe is very important, especially getting men here in our society to advocate the rights of women is a challenge. Imagine what a challenge it is in countries like Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Syria, where these traditional gender norms are still very dominant. It's a very progressive thing for men to also have these strong feminist views. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what it's like to be a Kurdish woman mm-hmm. in these kind of systems and structures? Give us an insight into what maybe that's like from a Kurdish woman's perspective. Sure. Well, I'd say from my experience and Kurdish women I know, the fact that people are unaware of the Kurdish race is one issue because your voice isn't very represented because people don't know that you're there really and that's a struggle and I think that's why many Kurdish youth have become so active recently because of this belief that well we need to give a voice to other women who for example in Turkey in Iran Iraq who don't have as much freedom as we do living in the UK to speak about our views, to advocate the rights of Kurdish women in Turkey. In much of the Middle East, there isn't a great deal of gender equality for women. And that's a big struggle. I think in Turkey, being both Kurdish and being a woman is very difficult. Not only are you at some times considered a possible terrorist who isn't really permitted to speak her own language, dress in her traditional clothes, but as a woman, currently in Turkish society um, it's not favoured upon to be a very strong outspoken woman and but we still have had Kurdish political leaders females who have been outspoken and who have spoken for not only women but the Kurdish cause uh, unfortunately these women have in most cases been imprisoned the HDP party which I mentioned they believe in a 50-50 co-chair system which constitutes of a man and a woman they have a co-presidency system which is both male and female and I think that's very progressive in Turkey and the fact that they gained such an overwhelming number of votes in the past elections but as I said most of these MPs are now imprisoned in Turkey or inciting terrorism. So why are they seen as terrorists? Well the HDP party has been quite sympathetic to the PKK and of course PKK is viewed as a terrorist organisation by Turkey and therefore if you're sympathetic to this organisation. It's crazy because Selatin Demirtas, the male leader of the party, he was at one point viewed as like the Kurdish Obama in like Western media and now he's in prison. But 
in Turkey, I think we have the highest number of jailed journalists. Currently, three journalists are, they just received life imprisonment because the day before the coup, they were on a show uh, called Özgürdüşünce, uh, which translates as free thought, and they've been accused of sending subliminal messages for a coup. So it's a big challenge to not only advocate Kurdish rights, but human rights in Turkey right now. What is happening in all the other countries where there are also displaced Kurds? Mm-hmm. Because Turkey seems like quite an extreme example, at least I hope. Well, in Iraq, there's quite a different situation going on because there is this unofficial Kurdistan in northern Iraq ruled by the KDP party who have quite different views compared to the PKK. They have the Peshmerga women who have started fighting now as well but there is still this more tribalistic view towards women in Iraq but there is and the KDP are seen to more advocate capitalism which the PKK is very much against their Marxist-Leninist. And the PKK, for example, views capitalism as one of the key reasons for women's suppression in society. In Iraqi Kurdistan, you could say there is more liberation. Uh, The Kurds there do have the freedom to rule their own way of living, for example. It's not so much the case in Iran, where women's rights aren't considered of great importance anyway. So, yeah. It sounds like a lot of it comes down to choice and freedom. Mm -hmm. I wonder, for Kurdish women who may want to have a say in their own lives but not necessarily be a fighter, is there much of a role for that? Uh, Definitely, I think. Yeah. Um, Maybe more so in Europe and other countries than actually being in Turkey or Syria. I think in London, for example, in the UK, many young women have turned to academia because there's like a lot missing in terms of academia on the Kurdish question, Kurdish women. And I think there's slowly, slowly, there's a wealth of reading materials building up in this area. That's kind of the route I turn to as well. I've had some work published in the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, for example, because it's not just that people in the Western world don't know about Kurdish people and Kurdish women, but many people in the Middle East don't know about them either really. I'd say that most people have turned to activism whether it's academic activism or the Kurdish people are very active with their demonstrations here in London. So I think one of the reasons why we we wanted to do this episode on feminism is because Mm. I think we want, want to kind of shine a light on Western feminism and modern-day feminism, and not and be critical of it. How does Kurdish uh, liberties and rights and fighting? How does that intersect with Western feminism? I'd say that Western feminism can learn a lot from the Kurdish women's movement. The fact that in the West we do have our struggles, but compared to some other parts of the world, we do have, in some senses, more freedom. You know, the basic right to campaign for our own rights and advocacy of our rights. From the Kurdish women, I think the fact that, again, when I spoke about living in such an oppressive society, but still having the strength to fight against that and what they've achieved through that, that's definitely something we can learn from in the West. And I think it's very important when we talk about feminism. I now identify as an intersectional feminist because I have a big problem with, like, sisterhood just being perceived as something which exists in one part of the world, but not globally. I think sisterhood, it should be something global and we should care about what's happening to women in other parts of the world otherwise what does feminism mean really the liberation of women it can't just be subject to one part of the world if we're not speaking up for other women and identifying the issues affecting them then we're not doing much at all you know how much are we advocating our own feminism and our own equality if we're not doing the same for others but again the fact that the hdp party for example had this system of co-presidency 
that's definitely something we can learn from and it wouldn't be impossible to have in our political parties I think it's just the question of do we want that does this country want that I think that's really interesting what do you think then that we can learn from the YPJ yeah well I wouldn't say to take up arms or anything (laughs) but I'd say we can definitely read more on the literature behind these women's views there's a wealth of reading materials now on the issue there's web outlet called The Region which now writes a lot on not only women's liberation in regards to Kurdish women but the Kurdish question in general so I think you know if we want to learn about how these women have achieved what they have we've got to read on like the background context of the situations they've lived in and I'd say that what we can learn from these women is from their strength really not only their physical strength but the strength of their beliefs the fact that living in such an oppressive society they've been able to be quite open-minded and think outside the box of what they've been taught and really go against this you know in many of the situations these women have been in obviously to decide to take up arms is a big decision and they've been in terrible situations you've had many of the Yazidi women join ranks of the YPJ because you know everything's been taken from them and there is this real belief behind the women and actually really fighting for their liberation and their people so yeah I think we could learn a lot just their beliefs really and their courage you know the idea of like taking up arms and being militant Mm. I always struggle with it but Mm. then having said that I feel like kind of any liberation we've ever been given in in the world has always been because we've had to fight for it with the suffragette like deeds not words unfortunately there comes a point where people lose sense in the idea of you know getting people to listen to them and I think unfortunately things like wartime uprisings often give women this chance to demand representation in ways that normal civilian life wouldn't what can um, us and our listeners do to be better allies to, I suppose, Kurdish women in particular? Um, well, I think firstly, having more knowledge of like the subject area and the Kurdish people, reading up more on what's going on in Turkey and you know Iraq, Iran. There is quite a lot out there on Kurdish women. There was a period when Western media had quite a fascination with their like long hair. I'm like, oh, these women are fighting, but they've got nice, pretty hair, <laughs> um, which is quite, <laughs> it was, that was, they were in Marie Claire magazine as well. There was a photo series on these women. And of course, that's kind of, in a way, like dehumanizing the whole thing. You know, it's not about looking pretty. It's, it's like about, yeah, exactly. So obviously reading past that and just having an understanding by why these women have chosen to do what they're doing, why they've chosen to fight physically against their oppressors. Yeah, I think it all starts with knowledge, really, especially if you don't know about Kurdish people in general. And then once you have that knowledge, advocating in as many ways you can the rights of these women. As I said, we have like many protests going on monthly, really. And if you want to join, you can. We have like many different offshoot groups now joining these protests, which is great to see. It's great to see the awareness of others for an issue you believe in. So, yeah. Is there any badass Kurdish women that we've kind of like forgotten and aren't like written about that you want to platform? Well, thinking of amazing Kurdish women, there was Leila Zana. She's still um, alive now. She was in prison. She was an MP and she was imprisoned for speaking Kurdish in Parliament, Turkish Parliament, and again, charged for inciting terrorism through speaking Kurdish. And she's like a great inspiration for many young Kurdish women. Now, um, Figen Yüksekta, who is the co-president of the HDP party, who's also currently in prison now. She's not of Kurdish background, 
but she has advocated the rights of Kurdish people and Kurdish women and HCP party going back to them not only are they progressive in advocating Kurdish people's rights they're progressive in advocating the rights of gay and lesbian people the gypsy community in Turkey they have an MP who's of gypsy origin and gypsy communities are also looked down on in Turkey, for example. And I think in London, there are many young women who are very active. There's Dilara Didik, who has written a lot on the Kurdish question. Uh, she's currently doing a PhD on Kurdish women at Cambridge University. Yeah, I mean, once I think in London, once you meet one Kurdish person, you're bound to meet more and um, because we are quite a tight-knit community and this idea behind the YPJ women this idea of the strong sisterhood has really resonated to young women here which I think is a really beautiful thing because you know our society doesn't always encourage a sisterhood yeah. <laughs> so that's something else we can learn yeah actually maybe I'd say that too and it's also many young Kurdish men here are very proud feminists as well which is really great to see is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to platform or how can people find out more about you or read the things that you've written or that journal article or yes go um well i put many of my writings on my academia eu webpage ones i've written for the journal of middle east women's studies just because you have to pay to actually access these things and i don't think that's fair <laughs> apart from that i work for parliament as well actually <laughs> so i work in the web and publications unit but as a my own little project i'm going to try and organize for kurdish youth to come to parliament and have more idea of what's going on there because there's not that much well in general with parliament you know there's quite a problem of getting normal people in and helping them understand how parliament works so yeah that's something i'm working on at the moment meryl talked to us about the kurdish women's movement in otherwise patriarchal societies and what we can learn from them sisterhood is something we can definitely take on board we've learned a lot about feminism through our guests this episode but what did you think let us know on facebook at kicking the Kyriarchy. email us kicking the at gmail.com you can find us on our website kicking the or you can tweet us at kick Kyriarchy. and if you liked this episode you might like our other episodes on race or beauty check them out Shout out to our wonderful assistant producers, Amelia Parker, Becky Malone and Emma Hallahan for their help in the making of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Woo. Yeah, I think that was all right. Yeah, I think it was okay. Yeah, yeah cool. Okay. Okay. Right, yeah.